travel. So, with that being said, Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 21. Once you're there, you can go ahead and stand, and we will read together. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible with you. And I know you all missed this, so one, two, three, read. This is the word of the Lord. God, we ask this morning that the work of your Son would be so evident to us. And that that work would be applied directly to our lives by the Spirit. We ask that you would be with us today, that we would respond to your word in the way that you have intended for us to respond. It is in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Um, so this morning, I'm going to do my best, as best as I can, to somewhat communicate what's happened in the last eight weeks, but also communicate what's happened in the first three chapters of Ephesians to help us understand where we're at in chapter 5. Earlier in the summer, we had communicated that we as a pastoral team were just starting to feel really hopeful and excited about the future of our church. And we recognized that there was a lot of opportunities that, that we just wanted to make sure that we didn't do anything in our own strength. And so we just started to ask, what does it look like for us to slow down for the summer to reinforce our identity in Christ, recognizing that, that we desperately need Him, and then on top of that, to, to be actively seeking what does the power of the Spirit look like amidst a body of believers. And so we, we sat down, uh, Luke and I sat down on a, a week and we just prayed over that, and I spoke with our other pastors at, at dinner one night. We just started to pray and ask the Lord what He would have us do for the summer, and we ended up feeling led to John 15. And in John 15, here's what we know and here's what we learn, that the call for the life of the Christian is to abide in Christ, which is important because according to Christ, apart from Him, you and I can do nothing. Not some things, not a lot of good, not some awesome stuff every once in a while, but nothing. The only way that you and I can do anything worth doing, anything life-giving, which is what the ministry of the gospel is about, bringing to life the things that are dead. The only way we can do that is to make our home in Christ. But here's what Jesus knows. Here's what Jesus knows, and here's what you and I hopefully know after the last few weeks, is that we cannot do that on our own. But God is far kinder to us than we are to ourselves, and so He promises to send us a helper. And He does. And that helper is the Holy Spirit. He is the third member of the triune God. He is God. And He lives within the body of Christ and lives within believers right now, empowering them 
to be able to do all that God has called them to do. So what we've been arguing for this last few weeks is that we need to be awakened to the incredible work of the Holy Spirit. Like we, we cannot ignore what the Holy Spirit does and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer but also in the life of the church because if we do so, we will not be able to do what Jesus called us to in John 15, which is to bear fruit, to look like Christ in the world today. We cannot do that. We cannot make our home in God's love. We have no hope whatsoever if God doesn't actively help us. So we need to know, how does God help us? Here's what we've said the last few weeks, we've said that it's only by the Spirit that we can live into God's love in Christ Jesus. We, we've said that God, the Holy Spirit, is in the business of applying the work of redemption to us. So God the Father initiates the plan of salvation. God the Son accomplishes that salvation on our behalf. And then God the Spirit applies all of that work to your life. He applies it to your life. The Spirit reveals to us who God is and and what God has done for us. He opens our eyes to the glorious hope that is found in Christ. And then as we grow in our knowledge and love of God, and as we are enlightened to the hope that we've been called to in Christ, we start to become more aware of the community with which we've been saved into, otherwise known as the church. Here's what I love. As we recognize what God has done, as we recognize who God has gifted us with in Christ and who God has gifted us with in His people, uh, we become more secure in the love of God. We become more secure in the love of God, or in the words of Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, rooted and grounded in the love of God. There's unity and belonging by the Spirit. The Spirit unifies the body of Christ. It gives you a home in the body of Christ, and then it roots, or He roots and grounds you in the love of God. Have you ever met a, for lack of a better term, a settled person? Like they kind of seem unshakable. You're like, what is with that person? Do they just not care? That's what the, the Spirit does. He roots and grounds us in the love of God, which is why I love that last week Kevin just, just over-preached the love of God. It's one of the things I love about Kevin. He will over-preach the love of God every time. If you're going to err somewhere, err there. And he did that, and he gave us the love of God because that's the call, to be rooted and grounded in the love of God which has been made available to us in Christ Jesus. And then we come to our text today. The work of the Spirit, particularly something called being filled with the Spirit. But before we get there, it's important that we recognize that our text finds itself situated in a larger conversation. Finds itself situated in a larger conversation, which is the book of Ephesians, right? So we can't take verses 18 through 21 and rip them out and make them say whatever we want them to say. We have to situate them within the entire book of Ephesians, Bible reading 101. Paul, in the beginning of this book, um, in the first three chapters, he has just been going after it 
about the beautiful goodness of the gospel. And, and so in, in, in the first three chapters, he, he is just actively trying to show off the glory of God and his grace in rescuing weak, brokenhearted failures from all nations who collapse by faith into the arms of Christ and then how God transfers them into the household of God, into a wholly other kingdom. Like Paul is going out of his way in the first three chapters of the book to show and to tell that story, the story of what God has done in Christ Jesus and what that means for our status right now as people. That's the message of Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. It's that by the grace of God seen most clearly in Christ and through faith in Christ alone for our salvation, we are leveraged into a completely new reality, the body of Christ, the church, a people that have been reconciled to God. We have been, we had, because of our sin, been separated, but because of the gospel, we are back home in relationship with God. That's what Paul is trying to get at. Your home, and it's not just you that's home. Look around you at the body of Christ. You're home together. It's mysterious. Like we look around and, and we see people that look different with us and we think, wow, that's different than me. But uh, the mystery of the gospel um, is that through Christ, unity and belonging are brought from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That it, it doesn't make sense to us, but somehow in the gospel, God breaks down cultural walls that would divide, but instead, He brings us together and unifies us and provides us with belonging amidst people we would have been divided from. He creates one people through the blood of Christ, which reconciles every single one of us back to God, and now the thing that is most important and true about you is the exact same thing that is the most important and true thing about every other believer in Christ. Let me say that again. The most important and true thing about you is the exact same thing that is the most important and true thing about everybody else who claims the name of Christ. And so... The Spirit of God gets into the church and He makes known to us these truths. He reveals to us who God is and who we are in light of that. He reveals to us who we've been surrounded by and then He drives us to supernatural unity and a supernatural sense of belonging with one another. And then the Spirit, He reveals the love of God which strengthens us with security, grounding us in the realities that we've been leveraged into. That, so far in the book of Ephesians, is the work of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit does in the church. And then in chapter 4, Paul turns. He turns from the glories of gospel doctrine and moves into gospel culture. So he moves from what the gospel teaches to how the gospel should look in the life of the people. What do these truths about who God is and what God has done look like when they start to take hold of a church? He moves from glories of gospel doctrine to gospel culture. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, he says this phrase. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy 
of the calling to which you have been called. That phrase of, of walking, it's going to show up multiple times in the next two chapters. In fact, the last time we'll see it is in this specific, uh, right before our specific passage today. But Paul is trying to get at something. There is a way with which you and I, as believers in Christ, have been called to walk and have been called to live. God does have a moral vision for your life. He he desires you to live in a a certain way, and he's going to just unpack that in chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians. Let me see if I can make this plain. Um, The gospel goes way down deep into our very hearts, and it starts to reorient us. It starts to turn us around. And as we grow in our understanding of who God is and what He's done for us, that truth, that doctrine, that teaching about who God is, is going to start working its way into our actions. It's going to start working its way into our culture. Ephesians 1, it says this. Well, let me, let me get there in a minute. <clears throat> one clear way, one clear way you can tell that the Spirit of God is present among the people of God is that the teachings of Scripture start to shape the culture of the church in a very real way. That's one clear way you can know that the Spirit is at work. It's not just something we believe. It's not just something we say we believe. It's something that actually shapes who we are. So it's one thing to know what Scripture teaches. It is a wholly other thing to be formed by what Scripture teaches. It is one thing to know what Scripture teaches. It is a wholly other thing to be formed by what Scripture teaches. And what Paul is trying to get at throughout this letter is that the teachings of who God is shape you in a very real way as a people. In Ephesians 1, we have the doctrine of salvation by God's work alone, which should create in us, when that doctrine becomes real to us, it should create a culture of humble gratitude that is incredibly confident in who God is and His power to save people, which should empower you for evangelism, right? Like if you're like, man, I'm so confident that God can save anyone, shouldn't you feel like great about just sharing who God is with people around you? If you're confident that God can do something about it, like I actually think that's why we pray is because we know what God can do. If God can't do something about something, then why do we pray to him? Like, The doctrine of who God is in Ephesians 1 should not move us inward. It should move us outward to others. I know who God is, and so I'm going to share about him because I know he can do something. Ephesians 2, we have the doctrine of salvation by grace and faith alone, which should create a culture that recognizes anyone can get in on this. Here's what Paul's arguing for in Ephesians, is that there is no difference between Jew and Greek anymore. All are saved through faith by grace alone. That's it. You don't have to be born of a certain family. You don't have to be baptized when you're an infant. You don't have to be somebody who was in the right place at the right time. 
You, anybody can get in on this. Anyone, Jew, Greek, American, uh, African, Mexican, that's everybody. Everybody can get in on this. Which should start to break down walls of division that we put up. If anyone can get in on this, then there's not a certain way you have to look to receive the grace of Christ. There's not a certain moral code you have to follow to receive the grace of Christ. If anyone can get in on this, then by grace alone through faith alone is the invitation and you and I as a people should be deeply shaped by that culture. No one is too far from the grace of God. And then Ephesians 3, we have the doctrine of God's sovereignty, which should create a culture that recognizes God's love is not something new, but something that we can find peace and eternal security in. In fact, the way that Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 3 is incredible. It's God's eternal plan. God's plan since before the foundation of the world. God's plan realized in Christ. God has been working all of this together so that, so that you and I might be saved. It's incredible the way that Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 3. He's arguing for this, this idea that this has always been the plan and he's always been working for the good of his people according to the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ. And so that type of belief about who God is, his sovereignty, his ability to be in control regardless of what's happening here on earth should shape you and I to be a people of rest amidst insanity. It should shape you and I to be a people of trust. I'm, I'm blown away as we preached through Daniel last year that God looks forward to great turmoil and yet his invitation for Daniel is to rest in that. His invitation for you and I is to rest. That doesn't mean we don't engage in the world that we're in, but it does mean we have a way of engaging that is not frenetic, not filled with anxiety, but is filled with confidence in who our God is and that he knows what he's doing. The doctrine of God's sovereignty should shape who we are and how we operate. We can rest in his love. We can rest in his power. We can be a settled people, a rooted and grounded people. We've been called to walk in a certain way, a way that is shaped by the gospel, the truths about who God is, should shape the way that we operate as a body of Christ and as a people in a way that promotes gospel doctrine, what the Bible says is true through our gospel culture, how we operate in light of that. The Spirit does that work within our midst, takes all of those truths about who God is and applies them to us, bringing about life order beauty so that we might see God's presence among us in a powerful way. And then we come to our passage, verse 18. We see this phrase, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 
Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying to be drunk is to be controlled by something that makes you out of control. To be drunk is to be controlled by something that makes you out of control. The only comparison Paul is trying to make is that when you are drunk, you are under the influence of a substance that makes you act in a certain way. When you are filled with the Spirit, though, you are now under the influence of God. So Paul is not trying to argue that the two look the same. He's not trying to say, hey, when you're filled by the Spirit, it kind of looks like you're drunk. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's arguing is that there's a way in which you and I can live and a way in which we can give ourselves to substances that would hinder us from being under the control of God and the will of God. Now, there's a lot that can go into a conversation about how we should use substances. That's not what I'm trying to get into right now, and I don't have time to do it well. But what Paul is clear about here is to be drunk with wine is to be under the influence of something that would change the way you can actually respond to God. You see, drunkenness brings chaos, foolishness, and pain where the Spirit brings life, order, and beauty. We're called not to be under the influence of the one, but to be under the influence of the Spirit. Paul is not claiming that we should be out of control like the drunkard when we're filled with the Spirit, but he is saying that our lives should be influenced by the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit instead of by other substances, particularly in this passage, drunkenness. But I would argue that there are other things, not necessarily substance abuse related, that you can also be controlled by if you're not careful. One of the most prevalent one, according to the Bible, is money. And we live in one of the wealthier countries in the world. So that's probably a big problem we have. Can't be controlled by money. Can't be controlled by drunkenness. Can't be controlled by these things that would pull us and drive us. We need to be controlled and driven by the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit of God. So how are we filled with the Spirit? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue four things. I think there's four things that are clear about how we're to be filled with the Spirit. Um, the first is it's a command. The second is it's plural. The third is it's passive. And the fourth is it's ongoing. Let me get into those real quick. First, it's a command. Paul is not here saying, if you feel like it, go ahead and, go ahead and be filled with the Spirit. No, do not be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. This is a command. This is emphatic. This is not something that you and I can ignore and say that's kind of an optional thing for the super Christians. That's for every believer out there. Be filled with the Spirit. A command. The second thing is it's plural. It, it would be, um, be unfaithful of us to this text to not recognize that this is situated in a context of plurality. In fact, afterwards, he's going to talk about one another in our, in our passage today. And, and before this, he's writing this to a church as a whole. This context of being filled with the Spirit, it's plural. It's written to the body of Christ. This is something we should be experiencing together. Together. Now, there is an individual aspect to it, right? I mean, you certainly can get drunk with people, 
But, and you certainly can be filled with the Spirit on your own, but Paul's primary context for the filling of the Spirit is within the body of Christ. That's who he's writing to. That's who he's addressing. And then the third is it's passive. Now, this is harder to see in our English text, um, but, but it, it's pretty clear that what Paul is trying to, trying to argue for in the original language is go on being filled with the Spirit. Let yourself be filled with the Spirit. Now, that's a weird, like, be filled. How do I, if I'm the cup, how do I fill myself? So something needs to, there's a passive thing here, but there's also an active engagement. There's an active engagement here as well. Um, when I was, when Julie and I were preparing to serve in India, uh, we were raising our support, and, and one of our, um, one of our friends during that time, he, he just told us, he was like, yeah, we, were having, we were really discouraged about how long it was taking us to raise support, and he just says, hey, you have to actively engage with what God's doing. You have to keep reaching out to people. You have to keep texting. You have to keep calling. You have to keep setting up meetings. But you've got to recognize that at the end of the day, you don't do anything. You have to actively engage without doing anything. That is, I think, what Paul is calling for in this statement of be filled. We actively engage and recognize that unless the Spirit does the work, we got nothing. There's no formula to how we can coax or manipulate the Spirit into our favor other than through Christ. That's the only formula God's ever given us. But there is, there's this, this active engagement. We be filled. We, we don't do something. We do something. And yet, at the same time, we passively receive. We are filled by something else. I think one of the best ways I've heard this said is from Mike Bullmore, he says, we are filled with the Spirit by a humble, eager orientation of our life to God. You can pray to be filled with the Spirit, but if your life is not oriented to God, if as a church we aren't loving God and desiring God and following Christ, we cannot expect the Spirit to fill us. The Spirit is the one who does the filling, but there is an active engagement that you and I have and play a role in that. And then the fourth is it's ongoing. Again, limited by our English translation, but um, it, I, want, I want you to have faith in your English translation. This is a good translation of Scripture. And, and yet at the same time, we are hindered here a little bit. This idea of being drunk and the idea of being filled are both ongoing things. It's a continual state of being. And so what Paul is trying to argue for is do not be a drunkard. Do not be continually drunk with wine. The opposite be continually filled with the Spirit. Be continually filled. It's an ongoing thing. The verb isn't talking about a one-time experience. It is a lifetime where you and I will constantly be posturing ourselves, orienting ourselves to the love of God in Christ Jesus, orienting our hearts to God, and asking Him to fill us and allowing the Spirit to do a work in us. Uh, I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts this. He says, drink from the Spirit of God, huge drafts of Him. I love that concept. I love that concept. So, how we're filled? Well, one, we recognize it's a command. This is something we have to do. Two, we recognize it's passive. We actively engage, but we, the Spirit does the work. It's plural. This is something that we do together. 
And finally, it is ongoing. This is a constant need for the life of the believer. This is a prayer that I pray every Sunday morning, Lord, fill me with your spirit this morning. May I be filled with your spirit so that the words that come out of my mouth are not mine, they are yours, that they would actually do something in the body of Christ because I could preach the best sermon in the world if the spirit doesn't move, it doesn't matter. I can present the best argument, the most compelling case. If the spirit doesn't move, it doesn't matter. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me again. But what does it look like to be filled with the spirit? Well, Paul is so glad you asked that question. It looks like singing, gratitude, and humble invitation. Now, before we get into those, um, we believe here, God, God gives gifts to his people. Some of them are miraculous gifts. And those deserve their own sermon. But here's what I will say today. We believe the gifts that we see throughout Scripture are still present in the church today, and we desire them to be active in our church. With that being said, if what we've been talking about over the last few weeks is not present, we should seriously question the spirit behind the giftings. We're going to get to this in a few months when we get to Matthew 7. We're going to go back to the Sermon on the Mount next month. In Matthew 7, there are people in that passage of Scripture who do really impressive, they have manifestations of impressive things. They're healing people. They're casting out demons. They're doing amazing things in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, I never knew you. We believe the gifts are present. We do. We desire them for our church. But if what we have been talking about over these last few weeks are not present in the church, we should question the spirit behind the giftings. Three things that I think are are, are clear from this text that need to be present in order to say a church is spirit-filled. Now, what I will say real quickly, there's more than this, but in this passage, this is what we're arguing. I don't have the time to recap the last three weeks. I tried to do that already. So if you want to go back and listen, if you're like, what? Yeah, there's other things, but these are the three things that are implicit in this passage, or explicit in this passage. The first is singing. Verse 19, it says this, addressing one another, so be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. A Spirit-filled church is a singing church. Songs, they, they speak to the heart. They speak to the heart. It's actually the way that you've been designed God has designed you in such a way to respond to music in a way. Like that is God's design. I know that in, you know, the 80s there was a lot of Christian material about it's the devil who made rock and roll. And I'm, I'm not arguing that he can't use it. What I'm saying is you have actually been created to respond to music and beauty in a certain way. Because in, in music and in beauty what we're seeing is our affections being stirred for God. The problem with us is we often turn our affections to other things other than God. 
But the problem is not the affection stirring. The problem is our idol factories of hearts. Songs, they speak to our heart, to the affections, to the emotions. They, they express in beautiful and creative ways what's going on internally in ways that words can't always express. And as the Spirit fills you, your heart is turned to God in such a way that from your very heart, which according to Scripture is the deepest part of who you are, flows praise and adoration. Years ago, I was attending a night of worship, and uh, it was kind of a packed, crowded room. So I was standing next to this guy, and we were both trying to like, raise our hands and worship, and we kept bumping, bumping into each other. And so he just puts my hand down, and he puts his arm over me, and then we're just like locked together as we're worshiping. And it's not normal for me to be standing next to somebody who's bigger than I am. And so I was just like, all right, I feel comforted. I don't know what I feel right now. But then we just went for it. We just started worshiping. And for the next hour or so, this is our posture, just arm over arm and other arm up. And it was weird. Uh, but I'm going to argue that that's a good thing. Um, there is a togetherness about our worship. There's a togetherness about our worship that it, that it creates in us. Notice the, the way that it talks about this, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, I do not think this means that we should pretend every Sunday morning like we are in a Broadway play. I, I don't think we need to address people in song, but what I do think is being argued for here by Paul is that we together fuel each other's worship. We sing together and, and something happens when we sing. Something happens when we sing. Something's going on that's, that's bigger when we do this together. In our worship, we are, one, telling ourselves that we're not the most important thing. And two, we are being joyfully defiant. Joyfully defiant against the difficulties of our age. If you don't sing, I would just ask yourself, why? What is holding me back from worshiping with the body of Christ? What is holding me back from being a a, a loud voice in this place. You don't have to have a good voice. It's not what Paul says, addressing one another with the best singing voice ever. No, addressing one another in psalms, which is your Old Testament psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. These are uh, arguments being made that, uh, that these are songs that are being written as the church is going, that these are Old Testament passages and New Testament passages. We have some of these in Colossians. We have some of these in Romans, we have some of these in Revelation, and, and, and the argument is that we should be addressing one another, that these songs should be present among the body of Christ. And that's actually one of the ways that you can tell if a church is spirit-filled is do they sing? Do they sing? But specifically, is there singing to the Lord? From, is it a genuine to the Lord? From their heart to God? The next thing um, that he, he says is, is gratitude. Uh, the next thing that I would argue is, is necessary in a spirit-filled church is gratitude. Um, Tim Keller, he talks about ingratitude being cosmic plagiarism. 
It, it's this idea that, um, that we don't give God what he deserves. Instead, we take credit for it. He calls it cosmic plagiarism, and, and then he, he argues that it's actually the root of all sins, that ingratitude is the root of all of your sin. And I think that actually makes sense. I think that's a compelling argument because in the book of Colossians, gratitude is a key to spiritual growth. Like it's one of the things that Paul prescribes. He's like, hey, uh, be grateful. And it comes up over and over in the book of Colossians and it comes up in our passage here today. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Well, are you filled with gratitude for who God is and what He's done? Are you filled with gratitude for who God is and what He has done? Are you recognizing that you were separated from God? You were far in your sins and God did not wait till you got it together. He went and got you and He transferred you into the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus and He says, you are mine forever and I will pay the penalty for your sins and He puts Jesus on the cross and Jesus goes willingly and joyfully for you so that you might know that there is a God in heaven who does something about your sins sin. There is a God in heaven who is not satisfied to spend eternity without relationship with you. There's a God in heaven who is not satisfied to wait till you figure it out, but instead will go and get you and bring you in and bring you home. Like, do you know what God has done for you? You are rescued, you are redeemed, you are transformed. And if we aren't filled with gratitude, all we're saying is we don't believe God's done his job. We don't believe God is who he says he is. This is why we, like, when you pray, I don't know, most of us, when we pray, we say something like, God, thank you for this day. And then we just, like, that's kind of a, a, a rote thing that we just repeat regularly. Thank you for this day. But, um, like, I just want, I want you to think about what goes into that statement. Like, you woke up in the morning with breath in your lungs. According to Scripture, that breath has been given to you by God. The world is being sustained by the power of God. So when you wake up in the morning and things haven't just crumbled all around you, that's because God is doing something. He is sustaining all of it. So that prayer, thank you for this day, right now it's affirming that I have breath in my lungs because of what God has done. And then after that, it's affirming that God's also upholding all of the universe. And after we go from there, what we're also saying is that everything had to work together just right so that the world would continue to function. And my parents had to meet, and my grandparents had to meet, and my grandparents' grandparents had to meet. Thank you for this day is not simply a rote, ah, I just said it because it's just what you say when you pray. When we sit and we actually think about what's being said in thanking God for the day, man, that is gratitude. Like when we start to really reflect on what has been done and what is being done, when we start to look around at the beauty in the world, like, what would, it, what would it look like if we as a people so filled by the Spirit started to slow ourselves down to actually notice what God has done around us? Man, I'm uh, family in, in my, my parents' church community was kind enough to gift them with a week at a cabin in Idaho for our whole family. And so um, we, we go up to this cabin, and I, I open the door to the front door of the cabin, and I look through, and the back of the house is all windows and this massive river. It's right on the Snake River in Idaho, and it's just gorgeous and stunning. And, and it's one of those moments where I was like, man, how incredible is God? 
But then there's something I noticed after a couple days of going. Like, I wasn't noticing how beautiful it was. I was caught up in my son's behavior. I was caught up in my own issues, or I was, you know, having a theological debate with my brother or my, you know. And so we were just, after a while, I stopped noticing. Like, I stopped seeing that river and thinking, oh, man, how amazing is God? Why? Because I got distracted and filled with other things. But then, last morning we're there. I sit down on the dock by the, by the river, and I'm just staring at it. And it took a few minutes for me to realize what I was sitting at again, the beauty that was surrounding me. And I think that's what happens with us. This is why I, I, I solely believe that God has prescribed the gospel as a regularly uh, uh, repeated thing in the New Testament, because if you and I just heard it once, we'd forget about it tomorrow. Multiple exposures over time is what reminds us over and over and over again about the, about the beauty of who God is and the beauty in the world because we get distracted. What if we slowed ourselves down enough to notice what's right in front of us? How grateful might we be for who God is and what he's done? Last, I got to move. This one's a lot shorter, but I think it's just as important. Humble invitation. What, is it, what does it look like to be a filled with the Spirit, I think singing, I think gratitude, and then I think humble invitation. Uh, verse 21 says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, that sounds great. Uh, it's it's very poetic in the way that it's written, but what does that mean for us? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, well, first, I think that's not counting yourself as better than anyone. I think it's a humility about who you are. But then I think it's inviting others in. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, submission, that concept, it's, it's obedience. It's, it's respect for their opinion. It's receiving their opinion and say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. Now, that's a really interesting thought to, to treat others as almost an authority figure. But then the fact that it's tied to reverence for Christ, or I think a better, a better term would be fear of the Lord. Like, submit to one another out of fear of the Lord. Like, I, what I really think that this is trying to get at for you and I is we should have a posture about us that is open to hearing healthy feedback from our brothers and sisters in Christ and responding when they bring things to our attention. You and I cannot see ourselves. We have tons of blind spots. And God has gifted us with a body of Christ that's able to see things in us that need to change and need to grow. And if we can submit ourselves to that humbly out of fear of the Lord, knowing that God knows what he's doing in gifting us this body of Christ, if we can submit ourselves under that and ask others, help me to see myself. Help me to see where I am not in line with who Christ has called me to be. We should have a posture about us that is open to hearing healthy feedback from brothers and sisters in Christ. This is something I've invited the elders and, and close friends into. I've asked them, I've said, help me see myself. Help me see myself. Help me to see where sin is in me. Help me to see where there's immaturity in me. Help me to see where I'm off. 
And they've been faithful to do that to me. And because of that, man, hopefully in 5 to 10 to 15 to 20 years, I'm not a young pastor anymore. <laughs> like hopefully by that time I've grown and there's maturity in me. Because I've, I've asked others, I've submitted myself to others and their, their eyes on me and saying, hey, help me here. And I think that's the call. How do you know that you're filled with the Spirit? Do you want other people to say something about your life? To, to teach you, to guide you. Ask others to help you see yourself. It's a humility that responds to others in such a way, not thinking of yourself as better than, thinking of others as, 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 as somebody who you want to have a say in your life. I think that's submission to one another. It's, it's inviting others to help us grow. So, in, in conclusion today, I've gone long. I haven't said enough, but I'm, I've said enough. What does it look like to be a Spirit-filled church? Well, I believe that the Spirit kind of makes us the good kind of weird Christians. Kind of makes us the good kind of weird Christians. And what I mean by that is we, sh- we should be a singing people. Uh, we sing loud. We sing often. We're really excited about what Christ has done for us. We think of others as better than ourselves. We honor one another. We welcome one another. We invite others to help us grow. Like, that's not a common thing in today's day and age. Hey, like, if you see me screwing up, will you let me know? I really want to fix that. Like, can you help me? Can you help me be better? And then we respond with grace when they do. Like, that's a weird place to be if people are just singing all the time. They're always talking about how thankful they are. And then they're helping each other grow in maturity. Like, that's a weird place to be. But I believe that that's the type of place that the Spirit creates in the church. We need to be awakened to the incredible work of the Spirit, and the incredible work of the Spirit does something in us. Makes us a loud, singing people who are really excited about Jesus and really excited about one another. We're going to pray. We're going to pray for five minutes here, uh, maybe closer to ten, and then we're going to take communion. Uh, I want to invite you to to break up into groups of three to five, um, and we're just going to pray that we'd be filled with the Spirit. We're just going to pray that. That simple prayer. I'm not asking for more than that. And I think if somebody starts to pray more than that, you should be like, hey, that's, we're just supposed to pray what's there. Like, just, and then just sit in that for a minute together. Just pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then just you know, lay hands on each other and pray. So let's do that. Father, we ask that you would fill us. You would fill us. We desire to be filled by the Spirit this morning.